0: Thank you, choir. Well, last Sunday, we, uh, pre- I preached a message entitled, My Place in His Story. You see that little logo there, that uh, graphic on the front of your bulletin, and today we're going to kind of expand a little bit of that message. Last Sunday, we talked a lot about our church's vision and uh, had a special event last Sunday night. Well, I mentioned in the, uh, in the message last Sunday, uh, kind of through the course of, of, uh, of that message, that, that God's Word is kind of laid out in four specific acts. Uh, the act of creation and and, uh, our act of the fall and our sin against God, God's act of rescue and then his ultimate act to come, that of restoration. And so this morning what we're doing is we're just kind of building on this theme. We're not looking so much at church vision except for the fact that the story is what paints the picture of our vision. And so this morning we're going to look at the first of these four acts of the Bible. I think the Bible can be summarized in those four acts, the first being Creation, so that's what I want us to look at this morning, and uh, take a look at God's word and see what He says about uh, about the whole topic of creation. But then, at the same time, to take a look at the implications of that as well. Well, many would call it the trial of the century in the 1900s, and uh, some of you already have an idea of what that trial of the century was. You remember where you were when the verdict came down, and you remember the countless hours of time that you spent watching the television and what you described as the trial of the century. Problem is, that's not the trial of the century I'm talking about. The trial of the century was actually much earlier than that, the first part of the 1900s. Many would say that the uh, details of that particular trial and the press coverage that came equaled, if not even would have surpassed had it come later in the century than that of what you're probably thinking of as the OJ trial. Uh, The trial of the century actually happened in 1925, and the person at the very center of it was a man by the name of John Scopes. John Scopes was a uh, 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 science teacher, to some degree at least, in the public school system in Dayton, Tennessee at that time. And In 1925, earlier in that year in the spring, Tennessee had passed a state law that made it unlawful to teach evolution at any level of the education system. Well, John Scopes, being a very popular and uh, being a very well-known teacher there in the public school system, decided, perhaps from some push from the outside, decided to test that particular law. The ACLU had already stated that they would be glad to represent anyone who was arrested for breaking this Tennessee law of teaching evolution at any level of the education system. So sure enough, John Scopes pushed the edge of the envelope, and he was arrested for that particular step. And as was promised, the ACLU came in to begin to represent him. Now, it became a circus there in little Dayton, Tennessee. A thousand uh, press people would pack the courtroom, a hundred newspapers in the courtroom every day, to the point to where at at some point it would sometimes be moved outside just because of the heat in that particular building where the trial was being held. The the two attorneys that were at center stage one was a man named William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan had run three times for president of the United States. He was known to be an anti evolutionist, and he would represent ultimately, you could say, I guess, the state, the prosecution in this case. And then Clarence Darrow would be the uh, attorney, very well known, very well known as an evolutionist as well, would represent. Scopes in this particular case. The trial would last for eight days. There was a lot of fanfare, there was a lot of posturing, and uh, a lot at stake. On one level, the conversation centered around the topic of evolution. I mean, again, this was a hot topic during that particular time period, as it is still in a lot of ways today. And so, evolution was the centerpiece of the conversation, but right beside it, sharing the stage, was also the role of the Bible as it plays out in the public square. Both of those were equally on display. Evolution and the role of Scripture as it relates to not just the education system, but ultimately to everyday life. The trial only lasted for eight days. I mean, it didn't go on and on and on as you would sometimes think. It was known as the Scopes Monkey Trial because of the nature of the conversation, looking at whether or not man evolved Right from the lowest levels up to who we are now and what role Scripture had to say in that. After that eight-day trial had ended, Scopes was found guilty, Right, so in a sense he lost the case. He was fined a large sum of $100, which in today's time would be just over $1,000, not a large, large sum of money for a case that was that prominent. But it was soon after that, within the next two years, that evolution was basically allowed to come into the public school system uh, 22 states saw those laws that they had passed defeated, and things began to change from that point forward. Well, it's interesting because when you begin to look at that particular firestorm that swirled around that, uh, that lawsuit in that particular case, I guess you could say, uh, you would think that it would have died down by now. However, that is certainly not the case, and, and it creates a lot of tension On one level, because there are a lot of people, both inside the church and outside the church, that would hold to some type of an evolutionary concept and at the same time would decry and would push to the fringes and would actually denounce a creation mindset. You can't have both to a large degree, you can at least. And then also, there's another layer of tension, you can say, because there are a lot of Christians that have never really thought through this particular doctrine called creation, There are a lot of Christians who've never thought through the implications of what it means to be created, right? They've just sort of always taken the Bible for the way they've interpreted it and have never thought through the implications. Let me just say this, and then we're going to begin to move forward. It is as dangerous, in my opinion, for us not to think about the implications of our origin. It is as dangerous for us not to think about the implications of our origin as it is to get the origins of our lives wrong, right? It is one thing for us to just completely miss it and, and to miss the mark and to be incorrect in where our lives began and where life started. It's one thing for us to just miss it and to believe error or false doctrine or whatever it may be, right? It's one thing to miss it. I believe it is equally as, as uh, horrendous for us, however, not to think through the implications of where our lives began. That is the question at stake. And so maybe for you, you've thought through this many times, maybe you haven't. But we have to ask ourselves, where did our lives come from? And not just once that's settled in our mind and in our hearts, but we have to think through the implications that if we have understood correctly where our lives came from, what then are the implications of that? And that's what I want us to look at a little bit this morning as we looked at the first of four acts, right? Right? Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Today we look at the first act and the grand story that God has made, that God has written and is writing as we find our place in that story looking at the first act, the act of specifically of creation. So how do we answer the question of where life is? began. You can't really answer it completely scientifically, at least from an experimental science perspective. You can't recreate, right? Uh, you know, if you believe in creation or if you believe in evolution, you can't go back and recreate you know, in a lab what happened at what you would call the beginning. It's just impossible to do that. You can't re- look at this from an experimental science perspective. You have to look at the evidence. It's called forensic science, You have to look at the evidence that's there, and there are two layers of evidence. There's one, a biblical layer that many will trust in, myself included, and however, many will not, but then there's also that forensic evidence layer, and we can say that is a realm of science, forensic science. You can look at that layer. So what I want to do for the next couple of minutes, and then we're going to turn to Scripture, As I want us to look at a little acronym put together by a noted Christian apologist, author, speaker, travels all over the country, college campuses far and wide, and his name is Frank Turek. He wrote a book titled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And yet in that book, it's not just all scripture. He doesn't really get to the Bible until deep into the book, but rather he looks at this forensic evidence and he puts together a little acronym that for me has been very helpful. I'll share with you this morning, a little acronym that when you're looking at the origin of life issues, it's an acronym called SURGE, S-U-R-G-E. And what he does is he pulls out five layers of forensic evidence, not scientific evidence in the sense to where it's an experiment that's been conducted in a lab somewhere But he pulls out this other layer, this forensic evidence, to help us to understand the beginning of the universe as we know it. And it's interesting because once we leave this layer of evidence and begin to see what the Bible says, to me it's been very, very interesting to see how the two Match up in many, many ways. The first layer of evidence forensically that Turek points out is the S in that acronym, SURGE, and that S stands for the Second Law of Thermodynamics. All right, how many of you remember your days in science class studying these kinds of things? Some of you still in your career have put those things into practice and continue to do that on a daily basis? Well, the, the, the first law of thermodynamics simply reminds us, and you learned all this, you just may have forgotten it, but the first law is that basically that the universe, that the, the usable energy in the universe is, is not eternal. It is, it, it is finite to some degree. It's not just eternal, right? It, there's not an, 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 an eternal use of energy, storehouse of, of energy that's available for us. And so when we understand that first law of thermodynamics and then couple that with the second law of thermodynamics that, that life is in a constant state of running down, it helps us to understand something very, very important think of this for a moment. Think you've got a top. My son had this thing called bay blades that he loved to play with. And these bay blades would basically, you'd kind of put your top there and zing, you'd pull it and that top would begin to spin. You may have done that in a different way when you were a kid. And whenever you zing pull that top and it begins to spin and spin and spin and spin, well, is it still spinning when you started that when you were eight years old? No, it's not still spinning. Because the moment you pulled it, it began to run down. It began to decrease in its amount of usable energy to the point to where it finally wobbled and it finally toppled over. And unless you did it again, it still sits there, right? Never been touched again. That is a very simple reminder that when you look at the second law of thermodynamics, things are moving from a state of order to disorder, right? From order to chaos. They are running down constantly. So when you look at the first law and the second law of thermodynamics, what it helps us to understand in a very simplistic manner is that this universe in which we live does not have an eternal amount of energy that is remaining constant. That energy, that usable energy in our universe, and we see this in nature. I mean, things are decreasing, they're declining, they're decaying. We see this. This universe, many ways, can be said that it is running down. That is the second law of thermodynamics. And and if the universe had an eternal storehouse of energy, right, things would just continue constant always from here through eternity, but that's not the way it's operating It's running down, it's running down, it's running down, it's running down. And if the universe was eternal, surely, by now, it would have used up. Or or rather, if the universe was, was was eternal but still running down, we would have used up all of the usable energy that was available. But we haven't. And what this reminds us is that this universe in which we live is not eternal that had a beginning point. And the very laws of thermodynamics help us to understand that, that when we look at our universe, there was a place where it all started. Turret goes into the second letter in the word surge. The second letter in the yeah. acronym is the letter U. And what he does there is he helps us to remember and to recognize, again, looking at the evidence that the universe is expanding. I think most would agree with that, right? The universe is expanding. That if you could somehow put it into a video, and let's just hit the rewind button from today all the way back to that beginning point, that that rewind button would go from the universe as it is today in an expanding form. It would decrease all the way back, hitting rewind to the point of where it began. Logically, that's what you would see. And whenever you run the video in reverse and you come to the place to where it logically began, what you're going to find is, again, not an eternal universe without beginning and without end, but you're going to find a universe (laughs) that if it's expanding today can be put in rewind all the way back to a point where it started. There is a starting point to our universe. There's a point to where you can say the universe was put into existence. The letter R stands for radiation, right? This cosmic background radiation, 1965 at Bell Labs in New Jersey. There was a discovery that was monumental in scope and in size. And this discovery was this cosmic background radiation that exists, that can be detected. And it was detected there for the first time in 1965. That cosmic background radiation is very, very interesting. In fact, the, the the uh, the presence of it and the discovery of it was was so monumental that it was almost like piling on to some degree, right? That it proved that there is a beginning point to this universe in which we live. That there is a point where the universe, as we know it today, ultimately came into existence. And with the discovery of this cosmic background radiation, what it did was is it discovered the light and heat from this beginning point where the universe actually began some would say it was the light and the heat that was sort of the remnants and the leftovers of what's called a big bang call it whatever you want but this discovery in 1965 of this cosmic background radiation shows that there was an event where everything as we know it in this universe started there was a starting point that it's not eternal it's not without beginning or and it's not without end there was a starting point To this particular universe. Well, interestingly, on the heels of this, about 25, 30 years later, 1989, NASA put up the satellite called the COBE satellite, COBE, put the satellite up, $200 million in cost, and this NASA satellite, right, that was put up by our own government, actually discovered that in that cosmic background radiation, there were ripples, right? There were ripples that were there that were kind of the early formations, so to speak, at the beginning of the galaxies that we have. And it was all intricately designed, and it was they're clear to be seen. Stephen Hawking himself, really, whenever he, whenever he came across the formation of these great galaxy seeds, the G and the search acronym, he would say that this was the most important discovery of the century, if not of all time. And again, it pointed to the fact that in this universe in which we live, there was a beginning point. It is not eternal. It hasn't just always existed. There is a point where the universe began. And the letter E would stand for Einstein's theory of relativity, the last letter in the acronym that Einstein's discovery, right? All of his formulations of what we now know as his theory of relativity point to the simple truth and the simple fact that life as we know it, again, in this universe had a beginning, that there was an absolute beginning point for time itself, an absolute beginning point for matter, time uh, or, or an absolute beginning point ultimately for space. All of this tracks back to a place where it began, and forensic science points to this; it gives evidence of this. And when we match this up against what God's word says, it is very, very interesting how the two begin to match. You know, before we begin to look at Scripture, let me just make a few a few observations. One, if the if the universe has a beginning, all right, then there had to be a cause. It just happened. There had to be a cause. I mean, you see my watch. This watch at some point had a beginning. It hasn't always existed. The watch you wear on your arm or that necklace or whatever it is you may have. I mean, there, there had to be a point where this came into existence. And when it did, there had to be someone who caused that. Every beginning has a cause. And when we look at that in the context of our universe then, not only do we know that our universe, because it exists, had a cause, but the one who caused it has to be one outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter. Right? Has to be one bigger than the universe itself, not bound by time, eternal. Not bound in power. Not bound in knowledge. That The one who caused this universe, which has been proven to have a beginning, has to be one who operates outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter. That is, a, that, that is an absolute non-negotiable. I mean, we, uh, you have to accept that. And if we then understand that this universe, which obviously has a beginning, which was caused by one outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, that if that was to have happened, it would only make sense that that uncaused cause that Creator would reveal Himself, doesn't it? And that's exactly what He did. Then in the pages of Scripture, we find that this God, this Creator, has revealed Himself, not just through His creation, but also through His Word and ultimately through His Son. Take a look at what it says in the very first verse in Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the grand story, God's story, we find that He kicks it off ultimately talking about His creation. In chapter 1, verse 1, it doesn't tell us exactly how God chose to create. Not all of the details. It does tell us to some degree, but it does give us enough to start with. Look at what He says. Genesis 1, verse 1. Moses would write this, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, when He said, in the beginning, God created The heavens and the earth. That word created is the Hebrew word bara, which means to create from nothing. It's kind of the story of the intellectual who came to God one day. Now, we know the Bible's teaching in regards to the creation of mankind, how created us, he created Adam from the dust of the earth. Right? And so the old story, you know, is this intellectual who came to God and said, God, I believe that your act of creation is not as difficult as some people would seem to think it is. In fact, I challenge you today to, an, uh, to a contest of creation. I believe that I can create in just the same way you can because of my intellect and my know how. I don't believe that we have to hold to creation coming from the hands of an all knowing, eternal God such as yourself. And so I challenge you to a creation contest. And the old joke goes that God said, Okay, well, I accept that challenge. And the contest is on. And so the man went over and he began to get together some dirt, right, to put it together. And God said, no, 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 no. you make your own dirt, right? <laughs> you know, a lot of times when we look at this whole issue of evolution or creation, a lot of times we like to start in the middle, middle of the story. God doesn't allow that. Scripture doesn't allow that. It says that he created from nothing. Again, the Hebrew word bara helps us to understand that, from nothing, that this God outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, totally infinite, completely omnipotent, uh, uh, understanding all things to be known without beginning, without end, that this God at a point in time chose to create time and to create space and to create matter. And he spoke this world ultimately into existence. And in all of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see the details of this creative activity of this God who was chosen ultimately to create. In fact, in chapter 1 alone, in verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 9 and verse 11 and verse 14 and verse 20 and verse 24, all throughout that chapter, it says that God ultimately created. He said, Let there be, or something similar. All through that chapter, God is creating. And for five solid days, He creates. And then the sixth day, ultimately, He creates mankind as we know it, right? We see the entrance into this universe that He breathed and spoke into existence on the first day. We see that God ultimately creates mankind. And it's a beautiful picture in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the book of Genesis. At the very beginning of the story, it is a beautiful picture of how God has, by His desire, by His own will, chose to create everything that we see and experience today. David would come across this thousands of years later. And as he wrote the words to Psalm 19, look at how he captures the beauty of God's creation. Psalm chapter 19 he writes and says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. When you step outside, it was interesting how Adam uh, mentioned that ride to school and how Ben and, and uh, 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 who, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, thank you, thank you very much, how they recognize the beauty of the artwork and the painting of God. That's what Psalm 19 is saying. Right? David says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. This is not a product of chance. This is not some form of spontaneous generation. This just didn't explode. And out of an explosion, all of this order came. This is evidence of a creator who, by his will, brought all of this into existence for a reason. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. David understood even without the technology of today, that what we see with our eyes is the product of a God who is personal with an intent to create. You look further in Scripture. You look in the book of Acts chapter 17. The apostle Paul comes along 2,000 years ago. Acts chapter 17. He says, "...the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands." Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. All through Scripture, we see the beauty of how God has created. And ultimately, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, verse 27 speaks of how he has also created us. That he's revealed himself through his creation. He's revealed himself through his word. But has revealed himself through his Son, most clearly of all. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, listen to this, how he speaks of Jesus, and the exact representation of his nature. In other words, this is a strong statement for the deity of Jesus. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, speaking of Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Act one in your story is creation. Every single one of us. Every one of us. The story that God is writing in your life, the very first act is that you were made by a God who made you specifically and who made you uniquely. It is as dangerous for us, again, to not think through, however, the implications of our origin. It's as as dangerous for us not to think through the implications as it is for us to get our origin wrong in the first place. So what are the implications? There are many. Let me just give you two this morning. The first is this, that your life has immense value. Because you have been created so specifically, every fiber of your being has been created by a God with an intent, with a will, with all power, not bound by time or space, a God who is eternal without beginning, without end. That same God is the one who has brought life to you. That same God is the one who has brought life to everyone that you lay your eyes on, regardless of who they are, where they've been, or what they've done, or how much they make, or what their struggles have been in life. Our God creatively has, has put in place every single life that we see. And that in itself gives us immense value. It, it, it ultimately brings you to a place to where you can say, as the psalmist did, as David said in Psalm 139, that I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. And where you may be tempted to look at your flaws or where may others, others may be tempted to pull out those things in your life that aren't where they need to be, and there may be plenty in your life that are reminding you of what's wrong and what you need to do better, what you should have done, right? Just remember that superseding all of that is the very real truth that your life has immense value, so much so that later in the Gospels we see that God himself died to redeem it. Your life has value. And that little abused kid has value. And that life that everybody else has given up on has immense value. And that prisoner has immense value. And that person who is isn't the same color as you has immense value. And that person who struggles with a sin that you don't struggle with has immense value. Why? Because they have been created uniquely by a God who chose to do so. Your life has immense value. Second implication, the final one we'll look at this morning, is that your life also has immense purpose. You're not here by accident. saw something on Twitter yesterday. A man traveling to perform a funeral for an 11-year-old who had chosen to take his own life. 11 years old. Happens every day in virtually every age segment. People who don't understand that by virtue of being created by a God who's personal, that their life has incredible, not just value, but purpose. You're not here just to earn a paycheck. You're not here just to enjoy the comforts of life. You're not here just to struggle day to day, a scratching and clawing to make it through and to survive. You are here for a purpose. And that purpose is not found in your personnel manual at work. That purpose is found in the manual that God has given you called the Bible that is the very word of the God who chose to bring you into existence and whose whose ultimate desire is that you live your life in line with His purpose. Why? Because it's His story. And as we find our place in the story and we understand that we've been created by a God who's personal, who knows us and who loves us deeply, when we find our place in that story, we then get to live our life on purpose, on mission for Him, living almost as though we are people in His kingdom, right? Living out His desires to help make the kingdom as big as possibly He will choose to make it. And that's your purpose. And the implications of where your life began from the mind and heart of a God who knows you is that your life has immense, ultimately, immense value and your life has immense purpose. So let me just ask you a question. If all this is true, right, and if we can ultimately understand where the evidence leads and ultimately uh, where the Scriptures point, right, that our life begins with God, let me just ask you a very, very simple question. So if all of this is true then, how are things between you and your Creator today? How are things going? (laughs) Are you close or are you far? Are you in a relationship with Him that changes everything, the way you view life, the way you live life, the motivations of your heart? Are you in a relationship with Him that defines who you are? Are you just trying to fit Him into the cracks and crevices of your life while you write your own story? How are things between you, ultimately, you and your Creator? And are you remembering... And are you thinking through the details that you are not a product of random chance and you didn't move your way up the chain to ultimately come to where you are today, that you are here by God's grand creative design? And we don't know how long you and I will be here, but we do know that we will live forever with Him if we have our hearts right with Him through His Son, Jesus. Act 1, Creation. You find your place in that story, but have you found your place into that relationship with God that changes who you are? Having turned from your sin, placed your faith in His Son, Jesus, and walking with Him closely every single day. Let's pray. God, we thank You today that You enable us to live out our days in the midst of Your creation. God, You're creative action reminds us that you are a creative God. Lord, as Adam mentioned earlier, we're all very different. And Lord, this world is comprised of so many different things that reflect your creative mind, your creative heart, Lord, the animals that you've created and, and the, the things that you've given us as blessings in our lives, God. You're a God who loves us so deeply. And yet, God, at the very beginning of it all, you created us to ultimately bring you glory and to bring you honor, that when we live out our lives through the words that we speak, and the things that we do, and the choices that we make, we have the privilege, God, of putting you on display. God, we are created in your image. Lord, you put us here as your ambassadors, your representatives in this world to point others to you, not just as creator, but Lord, ultimately as Savior. So God, we thank you that our lives have value, not because we have a great job or make a lot of money or know tons of people. Lord, our lives have immense value because we bear the image of you. You made us. But our lives also have immense purpose. Beyond oftentimes what we even can imagine, our lives have purpose because you put us here as missionaries, as representatives in this world to help point people to you. And so, God, give us boldness as we do that. And, Lord, help us to see that the lives we live make a difference when those lives are yielded to Christ. And so, Lord, may the decisions we make this morning help us to live in surrender and to be able to walk under the authority that you have over us as our God. And, Lord, may you get glory in all we say and do each day that we live. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. Maybe the easiest passage of scripture you'll find all year long. Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, just hold your spot there. We're going to get there here in just a bit. Well, last Sunday, uh, I preached a message entitled My Place in His Story. And uh, in that message, I made mention of how the story of God can really be summarized in four different acts. If you want to look at it as one big play, uh, you can summarize the story of God in four major acts. Uh, The first being that of creation, Act two would be the fall or the entrance of sin into God's creation. Uh, Act 3 would be Rescue, where God would send a Redeemer for us. His name is Jesus. And Act 4 would be Restoration, where God brings all things to an end or, in many ways, to a new beginning. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look at that somewhat of a new series, uh, kind of extending last Sunday into uh, the the story of God according to Scripture and finding our place in His story. And this message this morning will deal with Act 1, that of creation. Well, you may remember where you were in the trial of the century. You probably remember where you were when the verdict came out. You probably remember what you were doing, and it's emblazoned in your mind, the media coverage that took place and, and all those uh, details that emerged through the course of that trial of the century. However, most of you were probably not even here during that trial of the century, it was long before your time. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the trial of the end of the of the 1900s, the O.J. trial. That's not necessarily the trial of the century. See, there was another trial of that century that happened in 1925, and the man at the very center of that particular trial was a man by the name of John Scopes. John Scopes was a very popular science teacher in a very small town, Dayton, Tennessee. A law had been passed recently that year, 1925, in the spring of that year, March, April, somewhere around that time. A law had been passed in Tennessee, making it unlawful for anyone to teach on the topic of evolution. Well, John Scopes would be the one that would test that to some degree. The ACLU had come out and said, we'll be glad to represent anyone who wants to put that particular law to the test. And so John Scopes would be the man, the science teacher, very popular in that community would ultimately cross that line. He would be arrested because he would break that particular law, and ultimately all the machinery would be put into motion for a trial to begin. Well, there would be two particular attorneys that would be at the very kind of the centerpiece of that trial. One was a man named William Jennings Bryan. He had run for president three times here in our country at that point in his life. And uh, he was very well known. He was also uh, a student of Scripture, and he was, I guess, what you could call somewhat of an anti-evolutionist. And so he would be the one that would sort of represent the state, the prosecution, so to speak. And then on the other side of the bench would be uh, Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow would represent Scopes. And he would be known in that day as an evolutionist. And so those two lawyers, very prominent, very well-known, would somewhat go toe-to-toe in the midst of this trial. The media coverage was enormous, not just national coverage, but international coverage, even back in 1925, to the point to where there would be so many people in the courtroom that at times the trial would have to be moved outside just because it had become so hot there in the courtroom. Over a thousand people in the courtroom, a hundred newspapers represented there. I mean, it was a media circus. In 1925, in this particular trial centering around John Scopes, now the, the 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 there would be two elements that were at the forefront of this particular trial. One was the topic of evolution. Not just that it had been unlawful to teach that in that day. But the whole topic itself would be the very centerpiece of that particular trial, and it would be known, really, still today as the Scopes Monkey Trial because of the basic evolutionary principle that the belief, the scientific belief that man has evolved from the lowest form, right, up into who we are today. Evolution would be at the forefront of this particular case. But also, equally, on the same level as the topic of evolution would also be the topic of Scripture, God's Word, and the role of God's Word in our culture. William Jennings Bryan, again, known for being a student of God's Word, known for his faith, would also, to some degree, some could say, be put on trial himself during that particular time period, and uh, and it would be the topic of Scripture that ultimately would also be heard as a part of that case. Well, the trial would begin it would only last for 8 days and it would be over before you knew it not the months and months and months of a, as a later trial later in that century but it would be done in 8 days scopes would be found ultimately guilty and he was fined the grand sum of $100 ultimately interestingly for darrow his uh, his attorney it was the only time that he ever took a case free of charge. He didn't take any payment to represent him. And so he got off with a $100 fine for breaking that Tennessee law. But interestingly, over the next two years, laws prohibiting the teaching of evolution would ultimately be closed and put away in uh, 22 different states, and the day would change. It was in many ways known as the trial of the century in 1925. You know, that trial would come to an end. It was a turning point regarding the acceptance of evolution at least in our country and yet still today that battle rages on a lot of different fronts to the point to where you'll have many outside the body of Christ that will hold to a belief that man has evolved we started again at that lowest level the old saying is from the goo through, to the, from the goo to the zoo to you, right? That you just kind of evolved your way up the chain to the point to where you are now, right? The person that you are with the intellect that you have and the emotions that you carry and the moral fabric of who you are, that, that all just evolved. And then you'll have those who are on the other side of the fence that will hold to a more creationist point of the origin of life. Let me just say, let me just say that when you look at this topic, I think this is really important to keep in mind. That it is as much of a danger not to think through the implications of where your life began. It is as dangerous not to think through the implications of your origin as it is to get your origin wrong, all right? A lot of times we begin to think, well, I can't believe someone would hold to an evolutionary mindset, an evolutionary concept of the beginning of life. But we never think through the implications of what our belief is about our origin, right? And you may be a staunch person who holds true to the Bible. I hold true to the Bible, right? But if we don't think through the implications of where our lives began, that is equally as dangerous as it is believing the wrong thing about where our lives began. We have to think through not just the topic of where life came from. And those can be, in some ways, very uh, difficult questions to answer, not in regards to where life began, but the implication of all of that. We have to think through it, and we have to be willing to think through it at a deeper level than is usually the case. And so this morning, what I want us to do is just take a brief few moments to look through this whole topic of creation and evolution. From a, It'll be somewhat of a superficial level, right? I've got how many minutes left now? Maybe 20, something like that, 25? And I want us to look at it from somewhat of an evidence perspective, but then also from a biblical perspective. And I think what you'll find is, is that in some ways, the two match up maybe more than you think, so you're thinking already, well, Brooks, I, don't, I didn't think we could look at this from a scientific perspective because we can't go back to the beginning of life and recreate that in a lab. So science is not an option. Well, yeah, experimental science is not, and we can't. You're right. We can't go back and recreate the environment where life first began. However, there is another layer of science called the forensic level or the forensic layer of science, where you look at just simply the evidence that's on the table. You don't try to recreate the conditions, you just look at the evidence for what it says. There is a Christian apologist by the name of Frank Turek, noted speaker, author, travels this country speaking on university campuses far and wide, week after week after week. He's written a book titled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and it's interesting because he dedicates an entire chapter to some of what I'm going to share here in regards to some of the forensic evidence that's available from a scientific perspective, right? Forensic evidence that's available to help us understand where life began. It's one of the crucial questions that we have to get right, and that even once we answer it correctly, again, I can't say it enough, we have to think through the implications of that truth as well in order to live life the way that God desires. First thing that Turek mentions that he brings into the discussion as a line of evidence is the second law of thermodynamics. Let me ask you a question real quickly. How many of you used to play with tops when you were a kid? You used to get get your tops. It wasn't just back in the day, right? I mean, even still, they got these elaborate systems where you just put a string or some type of something there and zing, do that top. How many of you used to do that? Any of you? How many of you have ever seen a top or thought of one in your mind? Okay, there. I think that covers just about everybody. Understand the concept of what we're talking about. Now, when you did that when you were eight years old, chances are. And I can be fairly certain of this, that when you spun that top for the last time in your life as an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, whatever it may have been, when you spun that top for the last time and you're now a grown person, you're an adult, and you've got a family of your own, that that top is not somewhere spinning the last place that you left it. I can guarantee that. Why is that? Because it itself helps to prove the second law of thermodynamics that you learned one day back in school, but somewhere along the way it got crowded out for more important things like who's playing on Monday Night Football, right? So so you already kind of know that second law. And that second law is simply that nature is moving from a state of order to disorder. It's law of entropy. It's moving from order to disorder. In other words, the universe as we know it is running down. I think virtually every scientist would agree with that. It is in a, in a place of running down, just like that top that you spun is not still spinning after all these years, just as it ran down, so as well is nature and this universe as well. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Now, here's the interesting thing, that when you look at evolution from an evolutionary perspective, it goes completely counter to that proven law right? that's one of our governing laws in, in nature. It goes counter to it. It doesn't say that we, uh, that, that we are running down. Evolution says that somehow we moved upward, counter to the very law of nature called the second law of thermodynamics. It, it, it doesn't fit the laws of nature which have already been discovered and established. It is impossible for us to consider, really, logically, That somehow you came from a lower single cell form and eventually evolved your way up to who you are today over the billions and billions and billions of years that supposedly it would have taken for that to occur. It just does not fit even logically. And then by the way, let me just say this. I didn't mention this first message, but let me just say this. You probably are aware of the horrific events that unfolded in Pittsburgh yesterday right the it's uh, just a horrible event that took place this is where my mind goes when I think through that tragedy that unfolded, that for someone who holds to an evolutionary mindset, if, if, if we hold to that, we would almost, listen to me, almost have to applaud those events that happened in Pittsburgh yesterday because it is evolution at its finest, survival of the fittest being lived out in our very midst. Who on earth would be willing to go to that, to that degree? And yet that's evolution, in theory, at its finest. There's a second layer of evidence that also comes into play, that Turek mentions, that even beyond the second law of thermodynamics, it is equally to me, I believe, equally as compelling And that is that simple truth that the universe, as we know it, is expanding. I think most of science would agree, you know, with the technology we have today, that the universe is expanding. Now, how many of you watched a football game yesterday? Curious. Any of you watched a football game yesterday? All right. Uh, If you watched a football game, let's say for a moment that you missed the start of the game and you wanted to see the beginning of the game. And so you get your nice smart TV and you press the proper buttons. And You put that into rewind, well, that game is going to rewind to the very beginning of that game. It's going to move back, right, to where there was no game, and then boom, there's going to be a game there, and it's going to start. You bring that rewind back, and it's going to rewind back to the start. Well, if somehow you could put, I love the way Turk explains this, if you could put our universe onto a video, into a video player, and hit rewind, it's going to run all the way back to its beginning point. This universe is not eternal. There's going to be a beginning point that's going to come into place, and if you hit the rewind button, it's going to come all the way back to where there is nothing, and then hit play, and boom, there is our universe. Now, some would say that's called the Big Bang. We won't even go there. Let's just say even from a creation perspective, there's going to be a beginning point to the universe. Believer, unbeliever, regardless, most all would agree that the universe has a starting point, right? and that the universe is in a place of expansion. Hold on to that thought that the universe has a starting point. 1965, there were a couple of scientists working in Bell Labs in New Jersey, and they made one of the greatest discoveries of that entire century. These two scientists working in the Bell Lab there in New Jersey detected through their uh, through their technology and, and through their study of the atmosphere, they, de- they detected the presence of what's called cosmic background radiation. And this cosmic background radiation, simply put, is viewed as the afterglow or the leftovers, the remnants of the beginning point of our universe as we know it. Leftover heat, leftover light, I have no idea how much it would have cost, right, to create a piece of machinery that could detect this But the scientists were just astounded and amazed at this discovery in 1965, yet again proving within the scientific community that our universe has a beginning. Hang on to that thought. Our universe has a beginning. A few years later, 1989, NASA would send up a satellite called the COBE, COBE satellite at a cost of $200 million. Thank you for helping to cover the cost of that. NASA would send that up uh, into the skies, far into space. And within that cosmic background radiation, this COBE satellite would discover temperature variations, temperature ripples that were present in that cosmic background radiation. I know this can go far deeper than the majority of us who are in this room, right? But the simple story is is that it would be those temperature variations that would ultimately be the beginning point of the formation of the galaxies that we're able to study still today. Those temperature variations had to be precise and very specific. If they were off to one degree either direction, the universe could collapse in upon itself and ultimately life, as we would have known it, would cease to exist. And yet there they were, proven 1989 by this $200 million satellite. The beginning of the galaxy system as we know it, proving again that our universe has a beginning point kind of the final line of evidence to some degree would be Einstein's theory of general relativity. It would be Einstein who would bring everything down to a large degree mathematically and scientifically to the point to where his efforts and his work would demand an absolute beginning point for our universe, a beginning point for time, a beginning point for space, and a beginning point for matter, right? His general theory of relativity would put all of the conversation virtually to rest, to where even the scientific community itself at large would agree that this universe as we know it has a starting point. And the answer largely would be this event called the Big Bang, right? Let's not even get into the topic of the Big Bang. Let's just hold to the truth that has been proven forensically right through the evidence that our universe as we know it has a starting point. Now, here are some things that we have to keep in mind. Follow me with this that for everything that has a beginning, there has to also be a cause. I think we could agree with that. That watch you have on your hand or that piece of jewelry you have around your neck is evidence that there is someone who made that, who created it. It had a starting point. This watch is not eternal, I promise you. Many of these I've bought through the years, okay? They do not run. They have a beginning and they have an end, I promise you. And you already understand that. This watch, however, proves that it didn't just form itself, that if it had a beginning, that there had to be one who ultimately brought it into existence. And if we look scientifically, right, we haven't even gone to the Bible yet, if we look scientifically at our universe, and it's already been proven scientifically that our universe as we know it has a beginning point, then there had to be a cause to the beginning of this universe as we know it. And additionally to that, the one who caused it, follow me here, Had to be outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter in order to bring it into existence. If you create time, you must first be timeless. If you create space, if you create matter, you have to exist outside of those elements, not within. If you're going to create them, you must exist outside of them. And if that creator exists, wouldn't it make perfect sense, follow me, that he would desire to reveal himself to his creation? I think yes. And that's where we get to the Bible. This God that we read of in this book, who is without beginning, without end, who is eternal outside of the scope of time itself, outside of the scope of space, outside of the scope of matter, who is without beginning, without end, chose as an act of His will to start time, to start space, to create matter, and to bring life as we know it into existence. And that same God is not an impersonal force who lives somewhere out there, but that God is a God who not only created us but loves us and has gone to great lengths to reveal Himself to us so that we can know what life is like on His terms and so that we can know Him in a way that is very, very personal. God has revealed Himself through His creation. Look at what, look at what the psalmist David writes in Psalm chapter 19. Look at this on the overhead here. Psalm chapter 19, David writes this. 3,000 years ago. He says the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What David is saying is that when you look to the heavens and you look to the universe and the creation around us, that universe without ever even speaking a word cries out to the existence of a Creator cries out to the existence of a God who chose at a point in time to bring all of this into existence. Creation testifies to the existence of God. Now, we can accept that or we can decry that. We can push it away, but creation testifies to the presence of God. We need more to be able to know that God, right? Just agreeing that he exists is not enough. The devil already figured that out, right? We have to come to him ultimately through his son, Jesus. But at the very base level David himself would agree 3,000 years ago that even God's creation testifies to his existence. Even his creation screams and shouts that there is a creator who is alive and well in this universe and beyond. Look at what Moses would write at the very beginning of this Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's where you started. Look at how he would describe the beginning of this universe as we know it. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created in the Hebrew language is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word bara, and it means to create from nothing. It doesn't mean that God had a few elements to start with that have always been around, eternal, and then from that he created. It means from nothing God created. Bara, he created from nothing the heavens and the earth. He is a God outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, and he, by his own will, out of his great love, chose to create this world and you in it as a result. God did this. The eternal God spoken of from cover to cover in this book called the Bible is the God who ultimately did this, and his word testifies to his greatness. For five days, he created Genesis 1 and 2 captures that creative activity for us. And on the sixth day, he created what? He created mankind. He created you and he created me. There's an old joke that I heard years and years ago of an intellectual that came along to God. You remember, he created Adam from the dust of the earth. And this intellectual came along to God. All right, just a joke, not true. You won't find this in the Bible. And this intellectual came along and said, God, I don't think that your creative activity is all that difficult. In fact, I think I and my intellect have come to a place in my life where I've evolved to the point to where I could also create just as you. And so I challenge you to a creation contest. And so God accepted the challenge, and the man goes over, and he begins to get to work. And he gets down on one knee, and he starts to gather up some dirt and some dust. Because I mean, after all, that's kind of where it started, right? So he gets the dust and the dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. You make your own dirt. You know, you can't borrow from the Bible, right? You can't just borrow certain elements. If, if, if this universe and you and me along with it somehow burst onto the scene in a big bang event that took place, well, how, how, where did that, those elements come from? You cannot get something from nothing. Help me to understand in any area of life where you got something from nothing. It doesn't work that way, except. At the will of a creator who exists outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter, who has no beginning and no end, who has all power in this universe, who is eternal, who says, now's the time to start. And in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, in all those verses, God says, let there be, or something similar, and he speaks into existence this world that we see and that we know not by accident. It's not by accident. It is by a God who is eternal, who chose to bring this world into existence and you and me along with it. Genesis 1 verse 26 and verse 27, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, by the way, which He created, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. There's so much theology packed into those two verses. It would make sense that this Creator would reveal Himself in His creation. Thank you, David, for helping us to see that, Psalm 19. It would make sense that this Creator would reveal Himself through His Word. Thank you, Moses, for helping us to see that, Genesis 1 and 2. But the way God has most clearly revealed Himself is not just through His creation, not just through His Word, but through His own Son. Look at what it says in Hebrews Chapter One. We don't know who the human author was of Hebrews, but we do know that God wrote it. it says God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. That's Jesus, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. That is one of the clearest biblical statements of the deity of Christ that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, that Jesus is God. And it's He, Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of His power. Verse 3, when He had made purification of sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The understanding there is that he still continues to live today. Act one in your story is creation. Act one in every single story in this room is creation. Remember, it's as dangerous for us not to think about and consider the implications of where our life started. It's as dangerous to not think of the implications as it is to get our, our beginning of life wrong in the first place. So what are the implications? Let me just give you two. There are so many. And I encourage you this week to think through the implications of you being created specifically, fearfully and wonderfully made, as Psalm 139 says. I encourage you this this week to think through and add to, just these two I'm going to give you, the implications that come from being created from the heart and the mind and the intent and the will of God. But here's two. The first implication is this, that if we hold to everything that I've just said and read in Scripture, if we hold that to be true, then your life has immense value. Your life has incredible value. Incredible value that has nothing to do with a title, nothing to do with a paycheck, nothing to do with how many people like you on Facebook or social media, has nothing to do with what you've accomplished, has nothing to do with where you failed. Your life has incredible value simply because you have been created in the image of a God without beginning and without end. A God who is extremely personal and who knows the very number of the hairs on your head. That God who knows you, who has given you value in your life. Your life has incredible, your life has immense value, simply because of the one who created you. How do we understand, how do we know, and how can we accept that value? Because of the price he was willing to pay to rescue, right? That's act three in the story. The price he paid to rescue you and bring you back into a relationship with him as your God. Evolution has no explanation for the value or the sanctity of human life. (laughs) And that's pretty evident. Study Ethics, right? A lot of the laws of this country in which we live and around this world. And you'll see that an evolutionary mindset has very little room for discussion on the value of human life. However, when we read Scripture from cover to cover, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 of the first book in this whole entire Bible, we find that life has incredible value because it bears the fingerprints of the Creator who has been in existence forever. The second implication is not just that your life has immense value, but your life also has immense purpose, incredible purpose. Far beyond climbing the corporate ladder, far beyond expanding your knowledge base or your skill set, that your life's purpose is intricately woven into the divine purpose of the one who made you. And that purpose is ultimately to live in such a way that puts him on display and to live in such a way that draws as many who are far from him close to him. And that only happens through the gospel. So if these things are true, let me just ask you a question. So how are things between you and your creator today? And how are things between you and the God who made you right now? Would you say, you know, Brooks, I'm far from him. (laughs) My question would be, how on earth do you expect that it's going to be good when you're so far from the one who gives your life purpose and value and the one who puts his fingerprints all over your life that he made and designed. And maybe for some of you, you'd say, you know, Brooks, I've never known God that way. I don't even know him in relationship, but man, I would sure like to start. How does that happen? It happened 2,000 years ago, the start of it at least, when he, out of his great love for you, sent his son to die in your place that our sin is so horrendous in the sight of a God like that who's perfect, that He sent His own Son out of His great love and mercy that we just sang of 30 minutes ago, that He sent His own Son to bear that payment for our sin just so that you can come home to Him, be forgiven and set free. And if you don't know Him today, hopefully now you see why doing a bunch of good deeds doesn't wash away sin, it doesn't work that way, but rather what God wants is surrender to say, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you and I know that I've sinned against God who made me. But today I accept your payment for my sin and I surrender my life to you. Forgive me and take over. And that's a prayer that he'll hear every single time. So how are things between you and the God who made you? Do you know him? Do you know how much he loves you? Christian, do you know he's for you and not against you? And let me ask this. Do you enjoy Him? Because the whole reason He made you is for relationship. So that you can not just know Him and not just make Him known, but so that you can enjoy Him all of the days of your life. And when it's done, as David would say in Psalm 23, and then through Jesus, dwell in His house forever. Let's pray. Lord, what a grand story. You've written, and what a grand story you're writing. Lord, our story, our story starts with act one, creation, that we are not a product. We're not a product of evolution, Lord. We are a product of the heart and the mind and the intent and the creative activity of you, God. God, without beginning, without end. And thank you, God, that you're not just some impersonal force out there who created and put everything into spinning orbit and then stepped away. No, God, you are a God who is as much in charge today as the day you spoke all of this into existence. And Lord, you, lo- you know us and you love us. You know us better than ourselves. You know our greatest victories. You know our weakest spots. You know where we've blown it. You know all of that. And yet, God, you love us so much that you came and died in our place. So that when we begin to see the big story, not just that you've created us and that ultimately, as we'll see next week, that we've fallen away from you and walked away, but Lord, that we would also see that you loved us so much you came after us and that through Jesus we can know you. There are some here today that have never, never placed their faith in Christ. And they believe in you and they believe in your word and they're here for a reason. But God, they've never taken that step to say, you know what, I I can never get to God in my own strength. Today, Jesus, I lay down my sin, and I surrender to you. And there are some today who need to make that decision. And then, God, there are others who are here that made that choice maybe decades ago, but they've never really thought through or they've lost sight of the implications of that truth that they, even when they failed, that they bear the fingerprints of you, God, who loves them and have made them special and unique And Lord, you've created their life with value and with purpose. And Lord, this truth applies to the person in the deepest ditch. This person applies to the person with the the addiction that they couldn't shake, that society looks down on. This this, this truth applies to the person who's incarcerated, the person who has climbed the greatest heights, and the one who has fallen to to the lowest depths. Lord, it applies to every single one of us. No matter how abused or or, or taken advantage of or looked over a person may feel, their life carries immense value and purpose. And it's all because of you. Lord, why would we not want to know you after all of that? And so God, give give us a desire, a hunger, a drive to press into you closer and closer and closer as we study your word and as we worship you and as we walk with you. And for those that have never given life to Jesus, may that start today. May this be the beginning point of their relationship with you that a billion years from now, they can run the tape back and say, it was right there at that church on the corner that I gave my life to Jesus. Bless our decisions, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.